Hello and welcome to MacBytes episode 105. I'm Mike Thomas and I'm here with my co-host Elaine Giles. And in this episode, mismatched orifices, entertaining eateries and tears before bedtime. But first, you've been doing that Facebook thing again, haven't you? All in a good cause. Awesome MacBiter Andrew Black is on Facebook and he tempted me to bravely venture in there. Actually, he was in there himself as he was so pleased that last week there was talk of next week. Now, obviously, that next week is now this week. So you'll have to be on the lookout for mention of next week again this week. Trust all that makes sense? Makes perfect sense to me. Oh, jolly good. And we heard from Minster. We did. He was doing the sensible thing and eking out episode 104, listening in episodes. Not completely sensible, though. No, he did it while cycling to work. He knows no fear. I wonder what tales we can come up with this time to spice up his ride. Mm. And Helena was after you too. Now, that was about the way to control amphetamine from Alfred. We discussed it last time. So I'll do a clarify tutorial showing you how to do it and maybe a video if my voice ever returns properly. I've had a horrific sore throat. Me too. Everybody I meet says they've had it too and that it's not that it's just sitting there. It's not getting any worse and it's not getting any better. I've had it for over two weeks now, but I know people who've said they've had it for a month. Let's pause for sympathy. That was long enough. <laughs> I can't honestly say I heard much, but let's carry on. No. Um, following on from one of our recent instalments of the Personal Cloud series, Dropbox have added a range of features billed as productivity features. And you've had a look at those, haven't you? I did. Uh, I'll put a link in the show notes. Um, there's a little video that shows them to you. To be honest, the only one that tempted me even slightly was document scanning, which, you know, Office Lens. I do. And there was also, is it Pro Scanner? Is it Pro Scanner? There's a lot of apps where it turns your camera into a scanner. And when you've taken the picture of your document, you can then tweak it. So, you know, you square it up and, and it makes it it makes it look all square and proper. You know the ones I mean? Mm, I know the ones you mean. Office Lens is the one that I use for that. Well, Dropbox hasn't had that until now and they've added it. And it does work pretty well. Some of the other stuff, though, sharing from the desktop, I was convinced we already had that. But maybe they've improved it. There's a Dropbox badge so you can see who's working on the same document, which I thought was handy. And then I realised it was only Office files. Um, there's file requests. And I thought, what on earth? But it allows you to give people access to one of your Dropbox folders and they only get inbound secure access. So they can't see what's in the folder. It literally becomes like a drop off point, but they can put stuff in that inbound folder. So it would work well for sort of podcast collaboration, wouldn't it? People dropping things off. That's handy. Yeah. Um, there's now co-authoring on Microsoft Documents, so you can collaborate in real time. But again, isn't that just sitting on top of what Office can already do? It is, but you know, Box did the same, uh, certainly on the, uh, the enterprise level. They got into bed with Microsoft, and now from Box you can do co-authoring as long as you do it in the Office Online products. Yeah, I, did, I didn't venture into it any, much, any further than that. Um, there was a document comments, which I'm sure we discussed, and I said that I found them to be very awkwardly implemented in my mind, that if, I, if I'm interested in the communications that have happened around a project, 
I'd be interested in it on, on a project level, not a document level, because if you delete the document, you delete all the comments. But anyway, they're still banging on about that. So they obviously think it's fabulous. Um, there was also previewing files. The ones they mentioned were Excel, Photoshop and PowerPoint. Now, whether they meant all of the office formats and Photoshop, I don't know, but they only mentioned three specifically. Um, there's a secure sharing option and version history now. But like I said, I think for me, I even looking at all of those, the document scanning was the biggie. I just thought it was strange. It took them so long. It's now fully integrated into the mobile app. So I think when we looked at Dropbox, I said I don't really use the mobile app. I would do if I was transferring something or, you know, something very specific, but not not generally. Um, but if now they've added this scanning feature, I can see that people would use the mobile app more. It did work very well. Obviously, you've got to give it access to the camera, but it, it can do. The first thing I did was post-it note and I tried it when the only light in the room, it was about two o'clock in the morning, as is usual for me. And the only light in the room was there was the monitor. Um, and I, I snapped a post-it note. It looked it looked like a, a photo, a photo scanned copy of it rather than being full fidelity to the original. It was very black and white. But when I delved deeper, you could actually make it colour, you could make it grayscale. Um, there was also options for whiteboards and you could do the thing where you square it up properly and it then skews it to as, as good as it can get. And it was actually very, very good. So I did a whole page of a notebook, A5 size, in this very murky light and it handled it very, very well. I had some purple felt tip on it and it came through as purple and given the lighting conditions, I thought that was pretty good. The thing is, like I've said, it's so long after everybody else has got it that I think for people where that is central to their workflow, they've probably got another solution by now. But good to see that they're adding stuff to it. I'm still not tempted to use it for much more than document storage myself, though. And then there was the iPad case, wasn't there? Yeah, we've got an update about the iPad Pro 9.7-inch keyboard case that I mentioned. We were bemoaning the fact that there wasn't a dedicated iPad Air 2 version, but I was confident the iPad Pro version would fit sufficiently to be able to use it. And it does, after trying yours on my uh, iPad Air 2, I bought one and I love it. Um, I've only got one problem, and that is that I took it to bed and it was a bit heavy. First world problems, dear. Mm. Uh, I was thought you were going to say the only problem I thought with it was there's a slight mismatch with the cutouts and the speakers, but not enough to look bad. It doesn't obviously look like it's for a different iPad. And I don't think it impairs the function of the speakers at all either. No, not at all. And in fact, I took it to work and set it all up and the guy that's sitting behind me thought it was a Surface. I'm not sure whether that's good or bad. No, I'll leave that to uh, mm. to someone else to decide. Uh, the magnets work better than uh, on yours. That would indicate to me that the design of it is actually based on the iPad Air 2 mm. and that, yes, they moved the speaker cutouts, but they didn't particularly move the magnets. Uh, mine works, I'd say, probably about 70% of the time. So I just get used to turning it off. It's no biggie, that one, for me, not at all. Anyway, should we go on to the proverbial hitting the aircon between shows? Oh, why not? The great Evernote scandal of 2016. Did you read their press release? Not word for word, no. Oh, I did. Oh, made great reading. Uh, and I quote, A lot has changed in the past year. We've renewed our focus on the core of Evernote to deliver major updates on every platform from a redesigned Windows application to faster note switching on Mac, new camera features on Android to sketching on iOS. 
We've begun rolling out improvements to the note editing experience, with more updates coming later this year, and new integrations with Google Drive and Outlook make it easier to manage and work across apps. These changes are exciting, but we still have a long way to go to deliver the Evernote we envision. For which read, we're putting the price up. Do you know, I could save them a fortune on the amount of uh, letters they use in these things. Anyway, then it drags on and on. But basically, it then says, beginning today, the prices for our plus and premium tiers will change for new subscribers. For which read, go up. And access from Evernote basic accounts will be limited to two devices. Hmm. So we're in a situation where there's now three offerings, which there was prior to that, to be honest. But I don't think anybody took much notice of the plus and the premium. Um, so there's Evernote Basic, which is now limited to two devices. There's Evernote Plus, which is $3.99 a month, $34.99 a year. And then there's the full premium, which is $7.99 a month or $69.99 a year. I wondered how much that had gone up. Do you know how much that had gone up? No idea. That had gone up $20 which is quite a lot, isn't it? Mm. Um, then, that was all the information that they gave, but then they came back with an update. Many people have asked whether Evernote web accessed from a desktop browser counts as a device for Evernote Basic. It does not. You can access Evernote via the web browser from as many computers as you like, even on a basic account. For more information, see this link. So, it certainly engendered more comment than the 2015 price hike. In fact, I said to you, do you remember the prices going up last year? And you didn't. No. No. It actually went up in 2015 from $5 a month to $5.99. That was when they introduced the plus tier at $2.99. And their CEO, Phil Libin, gave forewarning of that increase in an interview back in November 2014. And he said that the service was priced too cheaply. And that was because the $5 a month charge was picked randomly seven years before that. So 18 months on, we're looking at sort of between eight and a half to nine years ago. And the price had never gone up either. So in November 2014, they said that they had between eight and nine million paying users. So got my calculator out. If you take the lowest number of subscribers that they're admitting to, which is 8 million, and you multiply that by the lowest subscription rate available in November 2014, that's 8 million users times $50 a year. Do you want to do the maths or shall I, shall I tell you? You tell me. 400 million in revenue, and that's before ad revenue. Are they saying they need more than that to grow and improve the service? He's probably going on director's bonuses. Ooh. You know, you're probably not wrong. <laughs> I don't know how much of that goes into the infrastructure, but you could build something quite nice with that, couldn't you? Now, I actually thought that these latest changes are more likely to re-engineer the customer base. I can see it reducing the number of subscribers because people have been screaming. But I can see even if, if it did, they could maintain their revenue by charging more, which they're doing anyway. That would have the knock-on effect that they can reduce support costs because they've got fewer users needing support. And it would also reduce the infrastructure demands because they're limiting the devices, which in turn, again, is further reducing users. Anyway, there was an interesting quote from that 2014 interview. Uh, this is it. Libin stressed that the free version of Evernote remains the main version. So that's in big quotes, the main version, as the company focuses on persuading people to start paying because they love it 
rather than by restricting the free features. Hmm, well that's going well with the new device limits, isn't it? You know, in the midst of all that fuss about the device limits, I did completely miss the price increase. Maybe that's what Evernote hoped. All you can say is, usual rules apply. If it's not worth the price of the subscription, don't use it. The price was actually more than I thought when I checked, though. Um, I thought I'd paid around $35, but obviously it must have been 50 I don't remember that. Um, luckily, I had just renewed, though, so I'd got a year to make a final decision. I wasn't actually a premium subscriber until the price went up. Oh, so you're the one that people are hating on. You're encouraging them to charge more. No, actually, I completely forgot that I had a year of FNO Premium included in a bundle that I bought at Christmas. And I'd, I'd had this email sitting in my inbox and I thought, I must do something about that. And when I actually went to the website and looked at what that bundle included, it had in it a year of FNO Premium. So <laughs> I activated it. So I've got a year as well to decide. OK, that was your shameful admission. Time for mine. That was the point I remembered I'd bought the same bundle. So I actually have two years to decide. Um, be warned, though, they take an extra year from your payment source before they use the credits on your account. Because I already had the credits on my account and I'd totally forgotten. I don't think I've got a payment source set up. Well, you wouldn't have because you you'd hadn't been a premium subscriber, but I oh. have. And instead of you, I thought it would automatically use the credits. Hmm. You know, I think every other system known to mankind does that. If you've got a credit balance at Audible, they use that before they use your credit card. Yeah. And Amazon use any vouchers that you have on the account before they use your credit card. So I just assume, but no, that doesn't happen. So be warned about that. They're going to take that extra year from your payment before they use the credits. So make sure that you manually pay by credit. To be honest, we only really... I mean, I have got about 8,000 notes in Evernote, but it wouldn't be a crisis if I had to put them somewhere else. The things that would make me think twice are things where we share stuff, where there's a workflow that works and it involves shared notes. And I think the two main things... Mm, one of them probably isn't shared, which is notes for recordings. Um, but the other one is the live event admin that we do. So while I'm talking live or Mike's talking live, we have this Evernote note up and we put questions in it and any other administrative type things that we would need for the event. And I think it does work well for live events, but it's nothing that, that is that demanding that one note wouldn't work just as well. The problem I have with it for notes for recordings is and I can't believe it's 2016 and we're still saying this. The word wrap isn't dynamic on the iPad when you zoom in. Doesn't that drive you mad? It does. You zoom in and all you get, it just crops the view. So it's very easy to get lost without zooming out again and then zooming in, you know, refocusing on another area within the text. There is now a solution, though. Scrivener. Scrivener for iOS works perfectly, but more on Scrivener later. There was also, as I started thinking about it, quite a lot of alternatives. They're just probably not as high up on, on people's agenda as Evernote. Evernote's pervasive, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but OneNote's the main obvious alternative. But when I started thinking about it, there's actually quite a few. I'm going to surprise myself now and mention Apple Notes. Not that I use that one. But there is. There's Apple Notes. And then as I was thinking about Apple, I thought, oh, and there's Google's offering, Google Keep. Do you remember when they brought that out for Android? Mm. But then there's also applications that are applications rather than being thought of as cloud-based services. So I definitely think ProOffice works quite well with their mobile offering. And then there's Ulysses, 
Scrivener could be used quite easily for notes, and that would just be a one-off payment. Um, a lot of people mentioned Quip, which I must admit I haven't used. Have you? Never heard of it. No, uh, it, it's a cloud service. That's as far as I got, but I didn't actually have time to have a look at it. Um, but people were saying it was very, very good. And there's other you know, dedicated apps as well. One of the ones that I use that does synchronise, I'm thinking, I think it uses Dropbox to synchronise. Most things do. And it's a dedicated app, just a single purpose. But I remember that what this app provides me with, I wanted to put in Evernote. And there wasn't really a good way to do it. And that is, you know, those chunks of code that you have. Usually for me, it's HTML, but it could be VB, VBA, uh, PHP, whatever. Mm. And if they were in your editor, your text editor, they'd be color coded. Yeah. And that was what I wanted in Evernote. I wanted to build. I wanted to have a notebook that was all my code snippets that I use repeatedly. And obviously it wasn't going to automatically colour code them. And I couldn't believe they hadn't added that yet either. So I had a look around. There was one option, which was an app that you bought from the App Store, and it promised to do that with it. But unfortunately, I, I wasn't going to trust something that sat on top of another service because one changed from either party and it was going to break. So I use an app called Quiver and it's, it's, a, it's Evernote for code. So there are applications, you know, sometimes it's nice to think that everything you could do, you could use one service for. So be it OneNote or Evernote or whatever, I'll, I'm going to use it for everything. But sometimes there's a job that would actually be better served with a dedicated app. And for me, code snippets were one of those. And, and I use Quiver for that. The thing is, with all of those apps, they do a decent job in certain areas, but they're not going to be as fully featured as note taking apps. So if you think about the Evernote Clipper and the OneNote Clipper, that really helps you build up your library of references because it makes it easy to get that information in there. To be honest, I've noticed that the Evernote Clipper has been failing a lot lately for me. But generally, both of them are great at capturing information and routing it to the right place in the notebooks. The alternatives, I mean, when they said you could use a browser... It's one answer, but I honestly don't think I'd fancy that as a permanent solution, would you? Uh, I do at work. If if I use Evernote, but to be honest, I very rarely use it. I tend to use OneNote because I haven't got it installed. Maybe on a desktop. Maybe on a desktop computer. Because you could, you could make a fluid browser or something, a site-specific browser dedicated to it, and then it, it wouldn't be that different. But I just think, can you imagine trying to use OneNote or Evernote on an iOS device. I, I've just got this vision of it constantly popping up messages saying, do you want to install the app? Mm, not ideal. You know, because a lot a lot of sites do that when you go visit them in a browser. Yeah. I just don't think it, it would work for me on iOS. Definitely not. Um, so I, I would discount a browser as, as a permanent solution. To be honest, one notes your friend. You'll doubtless recall me eulogizing about it uh, when the native Mac client was released. We did a two-part special with Kevin. Now, the too long didn't read version, or to be more accurate, the too long didn't listen version, we loved it. The other thing with it is there's constant development. And apart from tiny issues when, when a glitch gets through to a version, it is rock solid and it is on all, all platforms. But I do understand that some just won't use it because it's a Microsoft product. So it's either Microsoft and free or Evernote and paying for it. I mentioned when there's little glitches. Well, recently... There was a shortcut fiasco in OneNote. I, you know, I can't even say what those shortcuts are. I just use them with my fingers and I actually don't notice them. But, oh boy, you notice them when they break them. And what it was, 
it was the option and arrow keys left and right that they, that they broke. What they're supposed to do is navigate you word by word through your text, which they do in virtually every app on the Mac. And they didn't because they'd broken it. So it navigated you letter by letter. Drove me insane. You didn't even notice, did you? No, I don't no. use it that No, way. but it drove me mad. And that was one of the problems of using the Mac App Store because you don't know it's broken until you install it and then there's no rollback. Now, I tried a time machine rollback, wasn't having it. And I tried a manual rollback as well and it wasn't having that either. Mm. Because what I do, if something's critical to my workflow, like OneNote, when I install a new version, before I do, I make a zipped copy of the old version. But whatever they had done with it, when you rolled it back to that previous version that did work, um, half the menu went missing. So there was definitely something, there was no way you were rolling it back. You did beat it into submission though, didn't you? Oh, I did. Because as an Office 365 subscriber, you can download OneNote from the Office 365 portal, which you'd done and didn't realise you had. There's always one. Um, and you can configure your account, your Office 365 account, for fast-track updates. So I downloaded, after, after about a week of moaning, thinking they'd fix it quickly and they didn't, I configured for fast-track updates and I downloaded a fixed version. I then deliberately sat there with my fixed version like Blofeld with his CAD. And I was waiting to see how long it took the fixed version to get through review in the App Store over three weeks later. And the one that's come out in the App Store is version uh, .24 at the end. And the one I've been using for the last month is .25. So I've no idea why, where that one is. Uh, and I'm not sure if 2.4 is fixed or not. I only know that 2.5 is fixed. So um, yeah, a bit Bit of a rant about the App Store there. Then there's Apple Notes. I'm I'm not keen to even to even go there. Uh, I I don't think I've done more than you know. Like um, you get your first iPhone, you open it up, and you say, "Oh, hello world!" in a note, and then you leave it be. Mm. Yeah, that's that's my sum total of usage of that. What concerns me is the plumbing. Now you use it, don't you? I use it for quick notes that are chuck away. So you might say something to me and it's quicker just to open Apple Notes on the phone than it is to open Evernote or OneNote. What concerned me was getting the thing to synchronise. Well, I don't, I, I don't worry about the synchronising. As I said, it's just for a quick note. Well, when I tried doing it, you needed an email address attached to the account. Now, obviously, if you've got a .icloud thing, you know, icloud.com, then you're fine. But my Apple ID doesn't use a .mac.me.icloud or anything else either. So that means that they will give me an email address to make it work, but then it, it would be another email address to think about. The reason I don't want to do it is I live for the day when Apple come to their collective census and let you merge Apple IDs. So that, that one was out for me just on that basis. And I don't think I'd really want... I have got um, a .me.icloud thing, but I, I, it would mean adding another iCloud account to the system. And I'm thinking there's just too much scope for it to all come crashing down. So, um, no, I rule that one out. The next suggestion was Dropbox. Really? I don't get that. I do not see Dropbox and Evernote as two services that are analogous to each other. Complementary, maybe, but I don't see them as directly interchangeable. Do you? I don't know. 
And uh, even when you've found an alternative, you've got to think about getting your stuff out of Evernote and into that alternative. Well, that's another thing. I've seen a huge number of people saying that they're dumping Evernote. And they're saying that they don't use it enough to make the cost worthwhile. Now, I understand that, in which case you're better off moving it to somewhere that, that works for you. But I'd not heard much about what they're doing with the content that they've got in Evernote. Mm, I was thinking that too. Well, you can actually export your notes from Evernote. You've got two options. There's a basic export, which creates what's called an Enex file, E-N-E-X. And the app that you're going to, your new notes app, would need to be able to support the Enex file format to be able to import them. Now, there was an app called Just Notes um, that used to support importing those, but it's vanished from the App Store. So what I used to use that for was I used the Enex format to back up my Evernote notes. Because obviously it's very difficult to back them up unless you export them. Um, and all I used Just Notes for was a backup's only as good as have you tried to unpack it, have you tried to restore it? And I use Just Notes to do that with, but as I say, it's vanished. Luckily, OneNote has a solution. OneNote will import an Enex file. The second option is to make a backup with your attachments. Now, to me, an Enex file is okay. But if you have uploaded a lot of things, you've got attachments to those notes in Evernote. An Enex file is only half the solution. You want your attachments as well. Uh, you can export all your notes and attachments using this option. And it creates a HTML file and folder structure. So it would give you read-only access. Or you could import all of that into another app or service. I don't know what luck you'd have importing all of that. I'm thinking there was an app on Windows that would have done perfectly for that job. Remember TreePad? I remember TreePad, yeah. TreePad would let you import a whole folder-based structure. And you could then navigate with the links that were inside the files. So it would have worked brilliantly. Yeah, I think you'd have to try that to see uh, whether that would work or not. Now, I wrote blog posts detailing both of those export options. I had a look and it was back in 2013. Do you remember when Evernote instig instigated a global password reset? And that kicked it off too. Vaguely. Uh, it was something where someone had been hacked and they were worried that people had used the same password on multiple services. So they reset everybody's password, but they reset it before they actually told you they were going to. So one minute you're logged in and the next minute you're not and your password's not working. But apart from that, <laughs> so I'll put those links in the show notes to uh, how to get your notes out of Evernote. Now, there is an Evernote importer for OneNote and it's currently Windows only. There is supposedly a Mac version on the way, which interestingly raises the question of iPad only users. Apple are promoting the iPad as the only computer that you need. But in situations like these, I think they've got their head up in the clouds. Or up somewhere else. Indeed. I mean, one current issue is importing tags and how the importer handles them. I had a good old read about this. And I remember thinking, before I started it, I thought that's impossible. So when I started reading how it did it, I got as far as each tag becomes a section in the OneNote notebook. And I stopped straight there because I'm thinking that's not going to work. Um, there is a lot more to it. So we're going to take a more detailed look in a later show. Even if they'd not put the prices up, I'd probably use OneNote now anyway. It's the killer app for the Apple Pencil. Evernote does support inking, but nowhere near as, as advanced as OneNote does. 
they've actually just added the ability to annotate with ink, pens, pencils, highlighters to the desktop version on the Mac. And even without a tablet, it's eminently usable. In fact, I used it today to mark up an image of our car battery charger, showing the settings and what order to do everything in. And I sat there and I, I had the picture on my desktop. So I dragged and dropped the picture in and I reached out for my iPad and my Apple Pencil, thinking I want to draw on this. You put arrows and numbers on it. And then I thought, no, you can do that on the desktop now. And it did. It worked. I, I used the mouse and it worked brilliantly. My only one wish for OneNote would be that it integrated better with Clarify. Clarify has got a publish to Evernote feature and that would be great. My current workaround is to export the Clarify file to PDF and then embed the PDF and the Clarify file in the OneNote note. But to be able to do that automatically would be great. It would. And talking of workflows and things, I think you should share your workflow woes that you had this week. Yes, we've spoken a few times about a workflow that we have where we can both send files to each other by simply dragging and dropping them to an icon. It's a fantastic system. We wouldn't want to be without it. We first created it using DropCopy Pro, which at some point self-destructed. And we manually built another system using DropZone from Aptonic. Now, DropZone 3 is a really good app. Um, it was the replacement for DropCopy when it imploded. And what it gives you is a range of icons representing locations, and that's available from the menu bar. So we have a black hole icon. So it literally looks like a little universe black hole. And it links to a shared folder for content sent to you. So there's a black hole folder for me and one for you. And we have the same linking to a shared folder for content sent to me. So it's a bi-directional transfer kind of thing set up. So all you've got to do is drag and drop content up to the menu bar or to be more accurate until now to the top of the screen. So you can drag it up to the top of your desktop in the middle of the menu bar, if you like. So 27 inch iMac, you are not aiming for a tiny little icon on the right hand side. You can drag it straight up to the, to the top, anywhere along the top and the menu appears and then you can drop the file on it. Now, the reason that's so important is if you're aiming for the menu bar and it's a tiny little icon on there and you miss or you hover fractionally too long over another icon, you get their menus, the popovers or even other content. So we'd fixed it. It was working. It was fabulous. All was well with Project Replace Drop Copy. I think I know what's coming. So do I. It's self-destructed. Story of my week, to be honest. Yes. Drop Zone 3 was updated. And the only thing they seem to have done with it, you know, no, never mind bug fixes. The only thing they seemed to do with it was um, the drag to the top of the screen option was completely removed. It was replaced with a square floating window with a target on it. Yes, the whack-a-mole approach. This little window thing appeared as a flyout from the menu bar icon. So its location depended where the menu bar icon was. And even that wouldn't have been too bad if it only appeared when I was actually intending to transfer a file using it. But it popped up all the time. And I literally mean all the time. Moving files locally, maybe, as you would expect. But it flew out when I was organising slides in Keynote when I was dragging emails inside an email client, wasn't trying to drag them out, just move them around. Even pages within a pages document. To say it was annoying was an understatement. 
That also meant that I needed to close the entire app before I could record a video or deliver any live training. Now, the logic of the making the change to something that was perfect to start with was that in El Capitan, dragging items to the top of the screen does something completely different and it's controlled by the system. But there's nothing worse for your workflow than when a compulsory change means it breaks it. And something as serious as that you'd expect to be optional or at least be able to disable it. Now, I understand that the dragging to the top of the screen does do something completely different in El Capitan. It's spaces or desktops or something similar. So it allows you to transfer items between desktops. Now, I don't use it because it doesn't work via remote desktop and I've only got one El Capitan install and I access it via remote desktop. So they're aiming for consistency of experience between OSs. But maybe add an option to restore the previous behaviour. It would have been nice. I understand why they didn't, though. But, you know, don't force new behaviour on users without an option to at least disable it. Because I've already got a ton of utilities that I have to close before recording or doing a live session. And this just meant adding another one. So I was not a happy bunny. And I said to you, who usually updates a few days behind me, don't bother. You won't like it. And I don't think you did. So a few weeks later, another update. Light at the end of the tunnel, but not quite. More on that shortly. I was at the stage of wondering if I could thin out the number of icons that I had. And one of the ones, one of the culprits that was causing me problems was bartender. Now, you said you needed to see the bartender bar of icons for caffeine. That's right. Yeah, it's really because it's easier to see it to turn it on and off. Well, with amphetamine that we talked about last time, that's not an issue. All of which would be fine if you could disable the new blue popover, which, of course, at that stage you couldn't. Mm, foiled again. Indeed. But fear not. I figured they'd have complaints, and they did, big style. So they sent a, an emergency newsletter out with an interim measure, which was two terminal commands. One was for the direct version, one was for the App Store version. And what it allowed you, allowed you to do was disable the new popover, which was great. It only did one thing, though. It disabled it. And you could, of course, change true to false and turn it back the other way. But it didn't restore the previous functionality. So if you disabled it, then the thing wouldn't work at all. Not sounding good so far, is it? They are promising they'll try and restore the previous functionality in a future update. But as I say, disabling it meant the app was a lot less useful overall. Now, you could still use it as intended, but you needed to drag and drop to the menu bar icon itself. So you needed to be very, very specific with it. And as I said, I didn't have many showing, but bartender was the one that was causing the issues. Now, one solution would be to move the bartender icon away from the drop zone icon, which I was hoisted by my own petard here as I only had two icons showing. I've got the notification center, which I leave there, and I've got the clock. Then this fantastical next to that just to show the date. But then I've only got two icons, the drop zone icon and the bartender icon. Having looked at what I'd got in the menu, I thought, you know what, I could fix this if I could just lose the bartender icon. So could I survive without the bartender icon showing? I had a good old think about it and thought, yes, I can on a Mac when I'm working on it. Because I can create a shortcut key that will show the bartender bar. So you're saying I need to see the bartender bar so I can click the caffeine icon that's hidden within it. Well, if you could bring up the bartender menu with a shortcut key, you wouldn't need the icon showing, would you? No. 
So that's where I was at. So I created a shortcut key to activate and deactivate bartender with command control and B. That still left the issue of getting to the bartender preferences though. But with bartender running, if you go to Alfred and type bartender again, it actually opens the preferences. So all was well. No. Yes, afraid not. The shortcut key didn't work via remote desktop. It activated bartender on the local machine. Back to the drawing board. I needed a way to activate bartender both locally and remotely without the shortcuts clashing. Hmm. Alfred to the rescue again. What I did was I created a workflow that activated and deactivated bartender via a keyword in Alfred. It works locally. It works remotely. And it means that I can hide that bartender icon. I just use Alfred to activate and deactivate bartender. More significantly, it means there's only one icon in my menu. So it's now a lot easier to drag and drop the files to that icon, which is drop zone. Ah, peace. Until the next time they break it, obviously. It's the impact on your workflow and the time it takes to create the workarounds. And just think how many workarounds were involved there. Terminal hacks, swapping apps, testing it for an age, and a favourite of yours this week, regression testing. Uh, don't go there. Now, for anyone who doesn't know, regression testing is where when a new version of an app comes out, doesn't matter what the app is, obviously it's tested, but it should be tested to make sure that the existing functionality works. And we have a system at work which gets updated, they fix bugs, and what they don't do is they don't test what was already working. So that breaks on a regular basis. Isn't it like they say about Star Trek films, you only watch the odd ones? Or is it the even ones? I don't know. But either the odd ones or the even ones are very good and the others are terrible. So, yeah, same with um, apps, really, isn't it? They bring something out, it breaks something that was fixed in the last one. So the next one will fix that and then probably break what was in this one. Whack-a-mole, like I said. Well, on to better things. A new toy arrived to, to muddy the waters. Not just one, but two. BusyCal 3 for Mac and BusyCal for iOS. Actually, I got BusyCal for iOS first. It was only three ninety nine that bargain loved it and then the new version for desktop appeared that was 49.99 but the upgrade was only 29.99 so why did a new version of my favorite calendar app muddy the waters hmm. you mentioned this it was you that jinxed it you said are you sure it'll work on that because i'm on yosemite at which point i discovered no el capitan or higher only Arr! why don't you just update well, I would. I'm sensing a but. Yes, but my Fujitsu Scan Snap scanner isn't supported on El Capitan, which annoys me greatly because it works fine on Yosemite. I don't think it's eco-friendly to render hardware obsolete based on an OS update, you know. Now, I have had to seriously think about this because I am aware I can't sit there on Yosemite forever. But I could keep an older machine on Yosemite, especially for the scanner, but... I use it all the time and I don't want to have to leave scanning piling up and make it a special job. Paperless workflow needs to be frictionless and I know what will happen if I put the scanner out of reach. As you can attest to, given your scanner's under your desk gathering dust and has been for some time, what happens when you need something scanning? I asked you to do it, of course. Domestic. Before everything degenerates, let's move along. Yes, we heard from Alistair, who's about to put the cat amongst the pigeons. Alistair said, 
In mid-June, I bought a gold MacBook to supplement my Retina 5K iMac. The MacBook is what a laptop should be. It's light and simple enough to be carried around and used like an iPad. In fact, the MacBook is the best iPad I've ever owned. The poor iPad Mini 2 is now relegated entirely to games. Alistair. Gold. Do you know, when the, when these first came out, that seemed to be the least popular colour choice at launch. But recently I've seen a lot of people going for the gold version. Do you know what it reminded me of? No. Do you remember the iPhone 3G? We were in the queue for the best part of a month, as I recall. And the white one was treated as the girl's model. People just need to get over it. Buy whatever colour suits you, people. Mm, I got the white 3G. But which one would you buy now? Anything but pink. Mm, yeah. There's talk of a black one, but that's a rumour and we can't, we, we can't condone rumour mongering at this point. Anyway, back to the tech. I don't think that's such a bad idea. If you notice when people spend a fortune on iPads, they inevitably then spend ages finding the perfect keyboard and case for it, virtually turning it into a laptop anyway. True. And yet you hear so many people saying the absolute opposite to Alistair, which is their iPad has replaced their laptop. And that has really been the source of a million blog posts. Yeah, I think you use what works. I agree. Depends really on what apps you need. Many apps are available for both platforms with varying degrees of success and varying degrees of compromises. But some traditional desktop apps have been better on the iPad. I remember OmniFocus coming out on the iPad and it made the desktop version look really dated. My problem would be that if I wanted to watch the uh, sport, it's only on the iPad. and Well, actually, it's on the iPhone, but we're talking about iPad versus um, laptop. So it's the, the app is only on the iPad. There is no option to watch uh, via a computer. And the other thing is, um, if you were somewhere, you know, you, you know, we've discussed this before. You know, these people that hold the iPads up at concerts and take photos. And Yeah, you're not doing that with your iPad. Exactly. You wouldn't you you wouldn't do it with a laptop either. Never mind an iMac. Well, would you know it'd be possible? Front facing camera, I'll grant you, but if you turned it round <laughs> Yeah, move on. <laughs> well clearly Alistair's not not silly enough to be trying that, is he? <laughs> no, it's an interesting point you make about the sports because you might not make a distinction between the devices, and increasingly people aren't doing, but Sky certainly do. Because if you want to watch on your computer, I think the subscription's around £50, £60 pounds a month. It is. But if you watch on a phone or an iPad, it's £5. Pounds. There's a big difference there, isn't there? Mm, mm. Yeah. For me, though, there's the pencil. Now, while there's rumours abound it will eventually work on a Mac via a trackpad, it is currently iPad only, and I do seriously love mine. I've said it's useless without a companion app, and for me, OneNote is the killer app. In fact, they brought out another Duff update. Luckily, that one was fixed faster. But this OneNote update, they'd whatever they'd done, they'd managed to break the wrist rejection. Oh, it was horrific. Um, you know, because the pencil came out and OneNote was already there and it wasn't a case of adding and improving as it went. It literally, day one, boom, it, it was great. This was the first time it was like being dragged back to this is what things used to be like without the, the perfect wrist rejection. And it was horrible so the next version fixed it and i just appreciated my entire ipad so much more that it worked in one note so as i said they have added that feature to the desktop which obviously would work on a laptop but i don't know whether this system that that is at the st this stage a rumor which is 
that you will be able to use the pencil with a trackpad would include the trackpad included with a laptop or whether you would need an external trackpad. Although, you know what I've taken to doing? So this, this just proves Alistair right. I, you know, I got my wonderful keyboard case for my iPad. Yeah. And I've been using it while I've been out. And the key, the keyboard is fantastic. Do you know what I found myself doing the other day? No. Curling my thumb backwards and trying to use a non-existent trackpad. <laughs> Should have taken the laptop. Oh, never mind. No, see, I wasn't using the pencil that day. So anyway, how do you decide which device to use? iPad for mobile work, which includes lounging in bed working. Um, I tend to watch Now TV, the, the Now TV box. I, I've given up with the Now TV box. I actually use the app now, um, so I've got that on an iPad. I've also got Amazon Prime on there. I think both of those can be watched on a computer. But at least one of them needs silver light, doesn't it? Don't think either of them demand flash anymore, but I think they need silver light and I haven't got that installed. Um, I also like the iPlayer um, on iPad. And of course, I've got my two favourites, Air Video HD and Stream to Me. So they connect back to a media server Mac and I can watch whatever I want from there. And I've actually, so that's really what I, I personally would, would use them for. And obviously my iPad with my pencil. But I've actually chosen to, to demo certain things on an iPad to a specific audience. Seniors seem a lot less intimidated by an iPad than a computer. They see you with an iPad, they're OK. See you with a computer, cold sweat. Literally, the minute they see a computer, their fear just seems to close down their ability to want to take anything in or even feel comfortable. But a lot of them have got iPads and they don't think of them as being a computer. So they're way more comfortable trying things on an iPad. I see the same. I've got a mate who thinks nothing of using his phone, but claims not to be clever enough for a computer. Do you know that phone is probably 100 times more powerful than the one that put man on the moon? Burning question is, of course, will they ever merge the two platforms? Uh, no, not while certain folks are buying both. <clears throat> well, Alistair's bucking the trend. Go for it, I say. Whatever works for you. I'd like to know what the MacBiters think of Alistair's approach. Are they doing that? Are they doing the opposite? Or are they taking the expensive route and buying both? Let us know. Yes, let us know. And uh, let's talk about your shopping tech fail. Not your finest shopping related moment, was it, since the last episode? Don't get me going. There I was. It was really simple. I checked staples online for a stationary item. 100 A4 laminates, don't ask. I checked the price. It was £7.79. Probably not the cheapest I could get it for, but certainly not the most expensive I'd seen it either. So I checked the stock at the local store on the website. It said it was in stock, had the item next to it, and next to that it had the price. So I headed off there. Now, as I say, I could probably have ordered online for home delivery, but I, I needed them urgently and I wasn't about to be waiting. You know, you know, when they're coming from Hong Kong and they take six weeks. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't up for that. So it was seven seventy nine online gets in the store when I eventually found them buried behind. I think it was some toner. Nineteen ninety nine for the same item. I even checked the numbers thinking there must have been a mistake. Now, I needed them urgently, but not that desperately. So I actually spoke with, with the people in store and they weren't budging on it either. So I thought, right, what's needed here is some Twitter shaming. 
So I tweeted to them and I said, item 7.79 on your website, but 19.99 in store. A small difference I can understand, but almost two and a half times the price. Are you kidding me? I was told to order online and collect from the store. How is that different to buying the stock you had in today, except it's inconvenient for me? No, I think that's perfectly reasonable, don't you? I do. They replied, our store prices differ due to the different customer service experience and different overheads that come with the store. So, apparently I'm expected to pay two and a half times the price to be insulted in the store and pay their heating bill. Guess who wasn't impressed? So I went back to them. That does not explain why I can order the same item online and collect it in the same store at a fraction of the price. At which point they move into condescension mode. You know, when they throw your name in. This will be using our online store, though, Elaine. You will need to collect the item from the store. I thought I'd said that. I mean, look, it's in the store now on the shelf. I'm in the store and I'm stood in front of the shelf. Can't I just buy one? Apparently not. So it was a case of don't argue with an idiot. They'll drag you down to their level and beat you with experience. So I vacated the store. In the meanwhile, Andy in Surrey came back to me on Facebook and said, well, while you're in the store, order online with the phone and collect it in store. Now, I liked his thinking. It was a decent plan. But unfortunately, it was going to take two days to arrive. Now, I solved the problem while sat in the car outside. I ordered from Amazon with free next day delivery for four ninety nine. Ended up saving myself nearly £3. On Twitter, they're claiming it's the customer service experience that accounts for the price difference. Mm. I had a serious, th serious think about that. And I decided I'd want George Clooney serving me in a three-course meal afterwards for the price differential. I cannot understand how they think these days they will get away with that. Online shopping so pervasive, they need to get with the programme. Plus the fact, when I did the stock check... The price that was shown was seven seventy nine. That's bait and switch. Given what happened at Tesco, I think you should uh, do a regular series, Shopping with Elaine. Tesco's? What did I do at Tesco? Surely you've not forgotten having half the staff rushing around to your aid? That was not my fault. It never is. Right, there's next week's episode of a new occasional series right there. I shall think about it when I've calmed down about staples. Anyway, on with some new tech now, Microsoft Flow. It's something that I've been looking at. It's a relatively new service, which was launched at the end of April. Uh, and it's for creating automated workflows between cloud-based services. There's actually a very similar service called If This Then That, which is I-F-T-T-T. -T -T. I call that if. Ift. Ift. <laughs> Ift. Yeah, like Nout V. Mm. Flow was launched as a preview and it's currently free. And when it goes into general release, there will be a free version and there will be a paid version. No more details at the current time. Maybe they're keeping their eye on whatever note are doing. I was literally just thinking that. <laughs> anyway, it comes with some predefined workflows, which Microsoft call Flows. Very novel. But you can also create your own. And it's it's pr 
primarily aimed at businesses, but there's actually no reason that it can't be used by individuals as well. So if I give you a few examples of workflows, you can generate text message alerts from emails. You can pull tweets into Excel. You can get Slack notifications when a file's uploaded to Dropbox. It launched with 35 flows and Microsoft are planning to add more on a regular basis. Now to use it, you'll need to sign up and you go to flow.microsoft.com and click sign up for free and type in your email address. But here's the stumbling block. Only certain types of email address are supported. Doesn't support Gmail. Doesn't support Outlook.com, which is strange because that's a Microsoft service. And it doesn't support those free email addresses provided by your telecom providers like Virgin, BT and so on. Do you know, one of my favourite tricks is to try using googlemail.com instead of gmail because often you're asked for your business email by which i'm assuming they're trying to filter out throwaway email addresses but often they forget to include the alternative googlemail.com in their band list and i'd say nine times out of ten when i've tried that it's worked good point if you have an Office 365 business account, you can use the email address and password associated with that, with that account. I signed up using my personal email address, which is also attached to my Office 365 home um, account. So it doesn't have to be a, a business account. If you don't have an Office 365 account, you can still sign up. It's a bit convoluted and it involves signing up for a free trial of an Office 365 business account. I know that sounds a bit strange. There's no credit card needed. And during the sign-up process, you create an onmicrosoft.com email address. So I could be, for example, Mike Thomas at onmicrosoft.com. Why did I think that the onmicrosoft.com had another part of the domain before it? So that you'd be Mike at mthomas.onmicrosoft.com. I think you're right. Yeah, I think you're right. I don't know what, you know, if, it, if it's a business, it's obvious you'd, you'd put businessname.onmicrosoft.com. Yeah. I don't know what you'd do if it was personal, probably like I'm saying, M. Thomas or Mike Thomas. Yeah. I can't remember what I, what, what I used when I tested it, but yeah, I think you're right. Uh, the lack of support for personal email addresses actually caused a right stink. There is a, a link which we can put in the show notes to a, um, a, a forum where people are, are, are saying um, you're not even allowing us to use outlook.com email addresses which you know is as i just said is, is part of microsoft are people getting more cranky or are their expectations higher i don't know you expect things to work or they're just getting more cranky one or the other i think we're getting more cranky especially if there were evernote users that week yes if you when you when you once you've logged in start with a template and there's actually over 100 templates i gave you some examples before well i gave you some examples of the the flows before but if i give you a few examples um of of what you could do save tweets to an excel file that could come in handy for marketing departments who need to uh, a record of their tweets get a text notification when your manager emails you although I don't think I really want that. <laughs> Ensure your photos are backed up to two locations. If you upload a photo to OneDrive, copy it to Google Drive Photos. Save email attachments to OneDrive. Email yourself new tweets about a certain keyword. Sync files in a folder in OneDrive to a folder on an FTP server, which is 
is handy for backup. And you could also... Oh, I like that one. I could think of put uses for that one. Yeah. You see, there's, there's lots and lots of examples. When you say an FTP server, would it support S3, do you think? I didn't try it. It's, it's probably worth a try. I'm going to try that. You're going to, you'll have to sign up first. Oh, joy. I'll let you try that. <laughs> not, not with your Google email address. Not your, your Google Mail email address. You can you can create your own flows using a little wizard. So what I did as a test is I created a flow and I used one of the templates. I used the OneDrive photos to Google Drive. And the purpose was to create a backup of photos from my iPhone. So what I did is I opened the OneDrive app on the iPhone. I went to the settings and enable the camera upload. And what that does is any photos or screenshots are then uploaded to OneDrive. So that, that took care of that bit. I then went into Flow and I selected the template. Um, I was then prompted to log in to my OneDrive account and log in to my Google Drive account. And at this point it failed. I got an error message, unable to log in. Now, there is a workaround, and that is to create the connections to the services, the services in this case being OneDrive and Google Drive, outside the template. So create those connections separately. And that once those connections are set up, they're there and, and they can be reused. What you're basically doing is, is logging into your cloud services. Then start again by selecting the template, select the two connections, which you've already defined, as I say. Select a folder in OneDrive, and I selected my pictures camera roll because that's where the OneDrive app sends the screenshots and photos. Select a folder in Google Drive, and I selected a folder that I'd created specially for the backup of my iPhone photos, and then enter a name for the flow. And I called it OneDrive to Google Drive backup of iPhone camera roll, which was a good description. Catchy. <laughs> Catchy. Catchy but descriptive. So to test it, I took a photo and I took a screenshot with the iPhone. And then within about 20 to 30 seconds, they were then visible in OneDrive. And then within a few seconds, they were visible in Google Drive. Of course, if I manually added a file to the pictures camera roll in OneDrive, which you know I could do on my desktop, it would then copy it to Google Drive as well. And once a flow is set up, it can be turned off so that it doesn't run. You know, there's so many ways to do these things now that the trick is fast becoming tracking what's uploading where. I was checking OneDrive the other day and I realised that I must have set my camera roll to automatically back up to OneDrive. But I have no idea where I did that. It could have been in the OneDrive app on a specific device. I could have used a service, so something like uh, Ift. I only know that I scared myself half to death wondering what folks would have made of my collection in a live demo. Yes, good point, but we won't go there with that, shall we? Let's get back. No, we to, best not. Let's get back to Flow. There is an iOS app. It's free. And any flows that you've set up via the browser are displayed. You can enable or disable flows and you can monitor the activity of a flow, get notified if it fails to run. Um, you can view a flow's definition, but you can't edit it. Now, there is a plus icon on there for creating a new flow, but when um, I tapped it, it opened up flow.microsoft.com in a browser where you then have to sign in again. Oh, joy. Yeah. So in conclusion, it's not quite there yet, but it's a promising start. And I think it's probably one to keep your eye on. Well, once I've sorted out what else is uploading and to where, I'll take a look. 
Um, I did get an email from uh, IFT and they sent details of extensions to their channel this week. So they're obviously mindful of Microsoft being on their heels. The one I found most useful was day one. So you can have things automatically sent forward to day one, which I think is really useful. Uh, there were three others that I thought were pretty useful. There was Todoist items, uh, Google Contacts and Android Photos. So you can manipulate all of those items in various ways. Yes, Microsoft have a lot of catching up to do, don't they? They do, but they're capable of doing it because traditionally they do come in late and then take over. Look at yes. OneNote. True. But now I think you should share your latest must-have toy. Oh, indeed. In true Mike style, I feel the need to share the... Ooh. Right at the beginning of the review. Naughty, naughty. Oh, come on. I've waited for six years for the pleasure of seeing Scrivener on my iPad. And was it worth the wait? Yes, but don't tell Keith, the developer. It might slow down the updates. Anyway, let me eulogise a bit. We've mentioned Scrivener for Mac many times, and in case I never mentioned it, I've also got Scrivener for Windows. You kept that quiet. Just what I was thinking. In my defence, there was a sale on, and I was curious. But I do still prefer the Mac version over the Windows one. That's probably because I'm lost with all the shortcuts and half the interface these days. But Scrivener's a writer's toolkit, but it's not just for long-form written words or novels. I use it for a lot more. I create all my training materials in it, uh, apart from the stuff that goes through Clarify, and even the output from Clarify then gets taken into Scrivener. I run all my live sessions with it. I also create emails with it. So I write them in Scrivener, but when it exports, it exports to HTML that is then wrapped in, well, topped and tailed in the HTML that, that gives you the layout. So it's got CSS in it and all kinds of other things, and it creates a perfect email. I also write blog posts in it, and we moved the MacBytes production over to Scrivener back in December 2013 with episode 79. So doubtless long-time listeners will recall my long and desperate search for a workable system after the sad demise of... Wait for it. As I was saying, the sad demise of my beloved Google Wave. I think we tried absolutely everything else. And then I had the brainwave of trying Scrivener. Now, it took some work on the compile side of things, but within a few days, we got a system that was better than anything else we'd ever used. Better than Google Wave. Stop stirring the pot, Excel boy. <clears throat> the only problem was not having any access from iOS. There were hideous workarounds involving other apps, but they were, they were too horrible to contemplate. So the test for me with the newly released iOS version, would it complete the workflow? As I think I might have hinted, I was in the beta testing for Scrivener and it was awesome, but I couldn't really say anything until I got the nod from Literature and Latte, which came about a week before the release, which was the 20th of July, by which time I'd scheduled a live session for the day before release to share the love. It is completely awesome, honestly. Before looking at the feature set, though, there is the slight matter of syncing, also known as the elephant in the room. Despite the average user having the attitude of how difficult can it be, the sad truth is really that syncing is not easy. And the veracity of that statement can be seen in the number of companies who've been forced to build their own sync service to complement their apps. And when I thought about that, I thought, 
Yeah, OmniFocus did, you know, the Omni Group for OmniFocus. And as I started thinking about it, the list just grew and grew. Uh, Devon Think built their own solution. It does piggyback on various other services, but it's still their own solution. Do you remember things? I do remember. It was yeah. a standing joke in the early days of Magpies. Is the thing sync service ready yet? And it took years and years. There was no sync at all in it. They had to build their own. Panic have built their own. The hit list have got their own. And drop share have got their own. So you begin to see at that stage, maybe one or two companies want their own service. But if it wasn't absolutely necessary, I can't see all of these companies wasting time and effort building services that in in the main part are free to make the app work. Where the requirements are less complex and there's several common cloud services, you know, it engenders varying degrees of support and love from their users. And the runners and riders in the sync stakes, I, I drew them down to Dropbox, OneDrive, Box, Google Drive and iCloud. And I know that there are others, there's a lot of others, but they're the main ones. Obviously, Dropbox is a long-term favourite, but I I can't remember when I opened my Dropbox account, but I know when I did, I got two gig free. And now it's still two gig. I think they time to up that a little bit. The other problem with Dropbox is for many users, they'd pay more for a little bit more storage, but there is no flexibility in what's available. So as a personal user, the single subscription option is $7.99 a month for one terabyte. And that's overkill for me, and I'm guessing it's overkill for a lot of people, because they may already have space elsewhere. OneDrive provides a terabyte free with an Office 365 subscription. Google Drive gives you 15 gig, and Box for a long time were giving you 50 gig. So I know I've got two or three Box accounts with lots of storage. But Scrivener have opted for Dropbox. And they have explained why iCloud isn't an option in a blog post, and I'll put a link to that. But the short version is that iCloud isn't able to handle the file format, um, what they would need it to do. And I would have thought everybody had a handle on Dropbox by now, but it seems not. It seems many seem to be struggling with sync, and I really can't see why. I know at, at your company... There's lots of cloud services that shouldn't be used, aren't there? And everybody seems to understand Dropbox and want to use it, and that isn't one of them. I think that's because, like you say, pe- people see it being used outside work. And you know, even even when I'm running Box courses, I get people saying, is that the same as Dropbox? I say, similar name, similar concept, but that's where the similarity ends. I would expect most people completely instinctively understand Dropbox and what it does. And yet that doesn't seem to be the case here. I mean, it is a simple matter of installing it on the desktop, Mac or PC. I've put in my list, install it on the iOS device, but I don't even think that that is absolutely necessary because if Dropbox wasn't installed on your device, it would prompt you to log in via a browser, surely. But let's say install it on the iOS device. You then point Scrivener for iOS to a folder. And as a lot of apps have done these days, there is in the root folder, Dropbox, there is a folder called apps. And within that, you will find a list of apps. That's where a lot of apps automatically put their settings. And I've been doing that for years. So I was doing that before a lot of apps were even using it for sync. So you need to point Scrivener for iOS to Dropbox app Scrivener. 
And a lot of apps don't let you change that, but Scrivener does. So if you want it in a custom folder, you can do that as well. Now, if you've already got files that you want to be available mobile, you've got a couple of options. You could close Scrivener on your desktop and move the files to your Dropbox folder. Or you could open the files within Scrivener and then use the save as command and navigate to that Dropbox folder. That's all there really is to it. Big, big, big caveat. And this seems to be where a few people have gone wrong, though. Don't try uploading your Scrivener content via a browser. I couldn't understand as I was reading all the problems people were having, why they were having any problems at all. Um, so I, I said, well, let's try this. And if you have a .scriv file and you try and upload it to Dropbox via Chrome, it won't upload at all. Safari helpfully manages to zip it on the way up, which is completely useless because then Scrivener doesn't even think it's a Scrivener file. Why do these services make things difficult? But it isn't difficult if you just take the logical approach of installing the app and moving the, the file into the folder. Simple. I'd worry about sync conflicts. It doesn't happen unless you've forgotten to sync before you make changes on another device. And even if you did that, you don't lose data. You just get a new section containing all the conflicted items. I think I've been reading the most stupid reviews on the UK store. Those would doubtless be the classics I saw. One of them said, I've recently switched back to Scrivener from Ulysses due to the release of the iOS app. I spent the money and I can't sync my work. I'm very disappointed as I love Scrivener. Hopefully the new update will let us sync using iCloud instead of Dropbox. Going to go back to using Ulysses until a change is made. Really? Wow. Um, I've got probably the biggest file I'm synchronising is the MacVice file. And there is now 106. Yes, 106 is, is in preparation. Crazy, isn't it? How organised am I? So there's 106 units of content in there. They're not all the same, though. Um, the ones from 79 onwards are all Scrivenings within folders and files within Scrivener. 1 to 78 are all PDFs and they live in the research folder. And I can search them for when we last looked at something. And that's probably about 300 and odd megs worth, something like that. And it synchronizes absolutely fine. And it didn't even take that long. So I really don't understand why people are having trouble. Another one said, I can't understand why there's no iCloud support. I can't even open Scrivener files from the iCloud Drive app on my iPad. Why would you be trying to do that? I can on my iPhone, but of course, any changes can't be saved back over. My eyes were out on stalks at that stage. Having paid for the app, I will not be made to download, install, sign up and pay for Dropbox. So I'm his sitting here with the most powerful writing app and the most useless all at the same time. And a dissertation I can work on, I can't work on wherever I want. <sighs> dear, dear me. The answer to why not iCloud is in Literature and Latte's blog post and I'll put a link in the show notes. And, you know, you read reviews like that. I, I think I'd cry if I was a developer. Dropbox is free. And if you don't like it, then use a throwaway email address. You don't even have to use it for anything else. But you've also got other options. You can work locally on an iPad. Scrivener for iOS is completely fully featured on an iPad. It, so if, if you have taken the alternative Alistair approach, we shall now call this, where you are iPad only, then you can store all of your files on there if you want. Obviously, if you still decided to synchronize with Dropbox, you'd have them all nicely backed up too. But there's no compulsion to use it. It will work locally fully. There's no restrictions at all. 
You can also manually transfer files via iTunes. So you've got lots of options. So after having a look at those reviews, I'd say don't let those two put you off. The review ratio is about right. 124 five-star reviews, two four-star reviews, and those two one-star reviews. Ignore them. Ignore them. I, I've had no problems with the sync at all. And you have got other options anyway, even if you don't like Dropbox. So what made it? The anticipation building during the wait for me was really wondering what features would or indeed could be made to work on iOS because the desktop version of Scrivener is amazingly powerful. The thought of being able to have even a small percentage of that power on your iPad was mind blowing. And the good news is that much of the power of the desktop version is there on your iPad and your iPhone and even on the iPod Touch. So I'm going to start off with probably the place that you'll start most, which is the binder. And the binder is available on the left of an iPad and in a dedicated view on smaller screens. Now, if you're not familiar with Scrivener, the binder is the 50,000 foot view of your content, but it's configurable too. So you can show a synopsis, which is a summary of the content um, of a particular part of your content. So. In Scrivener, you chunk your content and they, that can be represented by either an index card or an element within the binder. And that you can have um, a short summary of. You can colour code by using labels. You can use statuses and that can be displayed as well. You've got custom icons in the binder view. And what I thought was really clever was, have you noticed when you're working with an outline, any outline now, but when you drill down in an outline on iOS, you're taken down to the next level, aren't you? And you have no view of the previous level you, without going back up again. Yeah. Well, if you think about having lots of different levels within your content within Scrivener, you could lose where you're at pretty quickly. And a lot of the time, and, and particularly for me, Omni Outliner, I, I always want to hoist things in Omni Outliner. And the hoist was taken out years ago on iOS. I've wanted to see basically two levels at the same time, and you can't do that. And what Literature and Latte have built in here is this kind of hybrid expansion, which is genius. So you could have five items at your top level, and you might be able, you might want to be able to see all of the fourth one. You can do that. You just swipe and you say expand, and it expands one node within your binder, but leaves the other ones unexpanded, which I think is genius. So love that, love that. Now, the binder is so flexible that the outline view, which is a dedicated separate view on the desktop, is part of the binder or the sidebar view. So the ability to change the width of the split, particularly on an iPad Pro, a large one, it's very similar to using dual pane on the desktop version. But I think the thing most people were excited about was the corkboard. It's the view that everybody is familiar with. And it's not just, it, it makes it through to the iPad version. It's not just a view for admiring the content, though. It's a living, breathing, interactive view, and it allows you to add, edit, move, and delete content. So as I say, it's in the iOS version, but it is only iPad, uh, not made it down to the iPhone and the uh, iPod Touch. And in that view, again, you've got labels and statuses, which are your colour coding and your stamps that you have on cards. So well, what I use for status is first draft, second draft, revised, done. So whatever, and you, you can change those. You don't even have to have them called labels and status. Everything is completely configurable. 
Also in that corkboard view, you can drag to move the individual elements. You can tap to add a new card and you can also enter an edit mode. Now, once you're in edit mode, you can again add new cards. You can also add new folders. You can duplicate existing cards. You can select multiple cards and you can merge cards. Now, I think all of that, to be able to do all of that in the corkboard is pretty stunning. But you know what I love? Me. You love me, don't you? Yes, Siri, I do. But I'm talking about in software. I've got an idea, but I wouldn't want to spoil your delivery, so do tell us. An info panel. I do love an info panel. And Scrivener's Desktop Inspector, info panel to us MacBiters, made it into the iOS version, and it's got almost all the features. It can be shown from many different locations as you're working. So that's very good for different workflows. Some people may prefer to be working a lot in the corkboard, others in the outline, or maybe others adding content. So the fact that you can get in and change the metadata from many different locations is very good. So I'm um, loving that. Now, obviously, there's no point putting all your content in Scrivener if you can't get it out again. And that's where compiling comes in. Now, on the desktop, it's amazingly powerful. If we take MacBytes as an example, it's how the same content in Scrivener can be exported for us as recording notes and as show notes in HTML for the website. And those two documents look completely different. To give you a clue... We're looking at a PDF now that's got sort of the headings in. So so, so we don't forget things or make mistakes, she said. How many outtakes today do you reckon? Five, six. Couldn't you have settled on quite a few? Anyway, moving along. <laughs> but that's a PDF and it looks like a standard document with page numbers on it. Um, and formatting. There's colour coding in there. There's headings in there. But when we create the show notes, we just want the headings and the links. Actually, in the notes we're looking at now, we don't even really need the links. So that would be for the show notes at HTML for the website. And then when we finished, it becomes archive content, which is completely searchable. And the, com the compilation function, the compiling that you can do, allows you to do all of that with it. Now, the iOS version lets you control whether a file or a scrivening is included in the compile. And it actually supports compiling out on iOS. You can compile on iOS to PDF, DocX, RTF and plain text. And then once you've done that, it integrates with the system wide share sheets. So in the live session that I did the day before release, I was able to compile an entire book to PDF. I then used the share sheet to air print it to my Mac. And I showed it the attendees on screen and then shared it via DropShare. So literally within 20 seconds, it went from being a work in progress in Scrivener to being a fully featured PDF up available on the web for anybody to download. So your options are barely limited, to be honest. Of course, there'll be a few features that didn't make it to the iOS version. The big ones that I, I think about, there's probably a few others as well, but the big ones that I think about are keywords snapshots and collections. But even of those three, I, I could live without all of them, I, I guess. 
um, made me smile when I thought about collections because they are much misunderstood. And I've heard some appalling examples of what collections actually are. And they're definitely not anything like that and how they can be used. So I, I'm suspecting a lot of people don't really use collections, which leaves sort of two gaps, which is the keywords and the snapshots. But because you're saving up to Dropbox, if you have it configured well, you can create the snapshots when you get back to your desktop. Uh, so it's not a case of losing too much. Hopefully one at some point they'll be added. They will be really nice features, all three of those to have. But they're not showstoppers that they're not on iOS yet. So overall, it's a five golden bytes moment for Scrivener for iOS. I just think the customization is amazing. I've talked about the binder options. One of the other things that's really useful is the extra row of buttons uh, just above the toolbar. So you have eight buttons, but there's three rows of them. You can swipe to the right and left three times. So you've actually got 24 completely customizable options extra to your toolbar. Now, I said when I was doing the demo that the first one, which were things like uh, punctuation, I know where the punctuation is on the normal keyboard and I would stick with that. So I've got eight buttons there that I can play around with and change to other functions that would be more use to me. One of these collections of buttons is to do with making selections. And I just think the way it works is fantastic. Never seen any better way to make a selection within a document. And also has every other feature you could possibly need when you're out on the road. Um, I love the way you can expand and collapse within the binder. And I could and did work mobile, adding stuff straight to the MacBytes uh, file. Hence, there is a show. Otherwise, I'd have the excuse of, well, I had to wait till I got back to my desktop and then I forgot. So, as I say, it's got almost every other feature you could possibly need. I think they've managed to take the best of the desktop version and marry it together beautifully with the features that iOS has to offer. The only thing that could have been made better for me was the addition of integrated Markdown which I mentioned in my live session. And a lady who was watching it, and I hope I get the name pronounced correctly here, Falana, Falana Crouch, came to my rescue with a keyboard replacement app. It's called Markdown Keyboard, and you install it, and then you follow the instructions, and you create a third-party keyboard with it, which happens to have all of the Markdown stuff at the top. So I'm loving that, having a good old play with that. She also mentioned Text Expander, which when she did, I thought, oh, yes, that would be a perfect companion app for Scrivener. Now, as yet, it isn't fully supported in Scrivener yet. Having said that, I've never managed to get the desktop version working, much less the iOS one. But if it were integrated, it might be time for me to have another look. So it's available right now via the App Store. It's available in all countries where Scrivener for Mac is available. It's £14.99 or $19.99. And if you want to save some money, use an iTunes voucher. Um, only, I only buy them when they're on sale. So I get 20% off all of my software. Of course, you're about to say that I buy enough of it and 20% is a drop in the bucket. But I'm going to try and work past that quickly. So uh, that's a way to save 20% on it. And I think it's worth every penny. In fact... I think I said to you, I pay three, four times as much. It's that good. So I think it's a, a very fairly priced app and a very, very, very good app. I've got as far as installing it. So now I think I need to do some serious work with it. Oh, you'll love it. Trust me. Right. Thank you.
So let's move on to the next instalment in our look at personal cloud. And today we're going to look at Google Drive. Now, I've always treated Google Drive as somewhere to create and store Google Documents and Google Spreadsheets. I must admit, I've never actually created a Google presentation. And only then uh, it was for files that we were sharing with each other because we were having problems with OneDrive sharing once upon a time. It's now fixed. Um, at one time, we used to store the pre-recording prep notes for MacBytes in Google Drive. There's a few spreadsheets that are, are in there that are still in use. But to be honest, those could actually be saved as Excel files and moved over to OneDrive. Why I thought of Google Drive like that, I don't know, because conceptually it's no different to OneDrive. It's cloud-based file management. You can store virtually any type of file there by logging into your Google account in a browser, navigating to Drive and dragging and dropping the file into the browser. That's my problem with Google Drive. I just don't think of it as generic cloud storage for any files. I only have Google Docs up there. I seriously underuse it. I would never think of uploading, say, a Photoshop file. I just wouldn't. I wonder what you to make of Scrivener files. I'm not going there. To zip or not to zip. Anyway, just like your free Microsoft account lets you create and edit Word, Excel, PowerPoint files in your browser, your free Google account comes with the ability to create and edit Google Documents, Google Spreadsheets, and Google Presentations within a browser via the Google Docs, the Google Sheets, and the Google Slides browser-based apps. So it is very, very similar to, to Microsoft Office, certainly in concept. With Google Drive, you get 15 gig of storage. I think you mentioned that earlier. Although I actually have 17 gig. I acquired two gig some time ago via a promo. However, that storage has to be shared across Drive for general file storage, Google Photos, which I must admit I've never used, and Gmail. So if you've got a lot of archived emails, especially, I'm, I'm assuming if, you, you know, if you're using Gmail, some of you I'm guessing aren't, but certainly if you are using Gmail and you've got a lot of archived emails, especially if those emails contain attachments, you may actually be using up Google Drive space without even realising it. Another potential issue for me, I've got 17 gig too, but it's currently using 13 gig with mail. Now, I think I'm using one gig with mail. Why am I using so much more? Because you keep more than me. I don't bother deleting anything because I don't I don't want to have to stop when I'm processing mail and think, would I ever need that again? I mean, there's obvious things like receipts. Obviously, you keep them. Um, software, serial numbers and stuff like that. But there's other things that if I had to either leave it in the inbox or delete it, it would be in the inbox. So I just archive everything. I don't delete. I mean, when Google Drive very first was in, introduced, it didn't have a delete button, did it? No. So I think I just went on with that methodology that you don't delete, you archive. A lot of what I get, I, I archive as well, because certainly in the mail app on iOS, the default is archive. And in a browser, you have got a delete button, you've got an archive button, and I do tend to archive. So maybe I just get less mail than you. Mm, I shall have to fix that. <laughs> what, by getting less or giving me more? Haven't decided yet. I'll let you know at the end of the piece. Okay. Regarding Drive, the interesting point, though, is that only files that you've uploaded to Drive, so we're talking about PDF zips, images, 
you mentioned Photoshop files earlier, um, Scrivener files, don't go there. But only files that you've uploaded will actually be counted to, to towards your 15 gig or whatever your storage is. Anything created with Google Docs, spreadsheets and slides won't actually count towards your storage limits, which is different to Microsoft. Because if I went into a browser and I created a new Excel file in, in, in OneDrive, uh, that will be counted. So they, they have come up with this this novel way of, of doing it. I guess that encourages you to use their um, built-in software rather than uploading Excel files. Yeah. You can buy more storage. You can buy 100 gig at £1.59 a month, or you can buy a terabyte at um, £7.99 a month. But as you said earlier, it, it adds up, doesn't it? I'm glad that there is an option for 100 gig, though, because at some point, you know, I'm going to look at it and think I, I'm touching the 17 and I need to add more. And if the only option was the one terabyte, then I wouldn't take it. Yeah. So but I would be prepared to pay 159 a month for 100 gig. Yeah. I'm actually currently using 8% um, of my 17 gig, which is just round about one just over a gig as i said before so i don't actually think i'll be needing to buy more certainly not right now and as i have one terabyte of storage in OneDrive, i'm quite happy to use the majority of my google drive storage for email having said that as i said earlier in the show i'm now using drive as my secondary backup for photos for my iphone now when it comes to filing google drive is a bit of an oddity because first of all there were traditional folders and then folders became labels, I think. And now we're back to folders again. And the problem with folders has, has always been, and, and not just in, in Google Drive, but just folders generally, has been the lack of flexibility. You know, as an example, you have a file called Training Team Budget 2016. And when it comes to storing that file, where do you put it? You could put it in a 2016 folder. Uh, and in a subfolder called budgets or a subfolder called training, um, or you could put it in a, a training folder in a subfolder called 2016. And what Drive does is it lets you put it in a folder, a physical folder, you know, as we all love and, and know, well, maybe not love, but we all know from using computers for however many years. And then you can create a point or a shortcut to it in one or more folders. You just press Shift and Z and select Add To and choose the folder. You know, that was what gave me a major headache when I was trying to organise the MacBytes stuff. The folders, after I'd set them up, became faux tags in an update. Now, that meant that you could assign one file to multiple faux tags stroke folders, whatever they're calling them this week. But then in another update, they turned them back to folders and I had multiple copies flying around. Now, none of that was helped by the fact that the folder list, though the list of folders that you've created coming directly off route, kept disappearing from the sidebar between sessions. So it didn't remember how you, you'd left it. So in the end, I gave up and I just dumped everything in, in route and I searched for what I want. But I think that helps explain why I don't really use it. Because the dumping everything in root method means every file has to have a unique name. Good point. Also, if you want to edit a file via the browser, it must actually be in a Google Doc spreadsheet or presentation format. Uh, what it does with other files, I'm not sure. I think 
you have to download them, edit them with you know, whatever Photoshop, for example, and then upload them, re-upload them again. But certainly with, say, spreadsheets or, or Word documents, that, that can get quite messy. What I did is I uploaded an Excel file, opened it with the Google Spreadsheets in the browser, because that's the only option you get, open with Google Spreadsheets. And it creates a new file in the same folder. So the original file has an Excel icon next to it, and the new one has a Google Spreadsheet icon next to it. I then open the Excel file again, and it created another Google Spreadsheet file. I then shared the original Excel file with another user, because that's another feature, just like all these other cloud services, being able to share files with others. They opened it in a browser, and that created another new Google Spreadsheet file. And you end up with you know all these files and some changes are in one file and some changes in, are in another and it's, it's, it's a total mess. The solution is to convert it to a Google format before editing or sharing. And you can do that by selecting the file, clicking the three dots at the top, selecting open with and selecting Google. That creates a new copy, optionally delete the original and then share the Google version. Another thing that I don't like, I think you're getting the gist of this, that I don't particularly like it. <laughs> yeah, I'm sensing this. Yeah. It's all right. I think it's a nightmare as well. Another thing that I don't like was the interface. It, it is confusing. When you, when you open your browser, you see my drive, which is like the root. Um, it's listed on the left-hand side. So there's a, there's a panel on the left-hand side. You click on my drive. That opens it up so you can see all your folders, but you can't keep that folder list expanded. So you have to expand it every time. And even more confusing is that because drive used to be called docs, Google docs, you can actually still go to docs.google.com rather than drive.google.com. And instead of being redirected to drive.google.com, you get a totally different interface. It's actually showing you your documents. And when I say documents, I mean equivalent of Word documents, because these days we tend to class everything as a, as a document, don't we? So um, you, you see at the top these document templates followed by a list of documents. And if you go to sheets.google.com, you get the same thing but for spreadsheets and slides.google.com, you get the same thing for slides. So all in all, it's not my favorite cloud service. Uh, I'd use it as a last resort if I needed somewhere to dump some files. Do you know, the shame of it is it could be amazing if it was all you had or you wanted a free solution because you would make it work if you had to. We're just spoilt by OneDrive working the way that we want it to work. But just like anything, you have to really use it to benefit from its strengths and to work around its weaknesses. I've seen those because I, like you, I, I'm always sitting there thinking, is it Drive or Docs? Is it Drive or Docs? And, you know, I looked at that portal page and those templates are really nice. They are very powerful. I could actually see me for a presentation or a document starting off in one of those templates, but then I would convert it to an office file and take it over to OneDrive. So I think it could be amazing, but I think you'd really have to put a lot of effort in it over and above that you would need to put in any of the other services that we've looked at. Agree. Yeah. Now, in our few weeks rest, the European Football Championships were on. And true to form, England were home before the postcards. Never mind England, it was Germany that Dan A was interested in. 
Germany missing a penalty for the first time since 1982 gave the pundits time to reminisce that when that happened back in 1982, the Goombay Dance Band were at number one with Seven Tears. Playing Seven Tears by the Goombay Dance Band. Seven Tears have flown into the Dan admitted, I quote, despite being a fan of 80s music, it's a hit that would have re- I would have remained ignorant of if it were not for MacBytes. Dan, call it a public service. And after my nightmare of trying to buy iTunes vouchers, I spotted a story in the local paper regarding bulk purchases of said iTunes vouchers. Pensioner was conned into buying £1,400 worth of iTunes vouchers following a telephone scam. The man received a phone call from somebody claiming to be working from the HMRC, which is a government department. Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, dear. Yes, thank you. I don't want to have a lot to do with them. Anyway. Me neither, but I do know who they are. Yes. He was told that he owed the government £5,000 and if he didn't pay up, he'd be taken to court. The man was told to purchase £5,000 worth of iTunes vouchers from a shop, which would be collected from his house in the evening. But he began to feel anxious after purchasing £1,400 worth of iTunes vouchers and decided to speak to a police officer. I want to know how he managed to buy £1,400 worth of iTunes vouchers in less than, ooh, say, a month? Yes, that would be 56 £25 vouchers. In batches of four, it would still be 14 transactions. Now, given the general stock levels around here and the speed of the average assistant, you'd be there all day. I would. Yes, anyway, be careful. I had no idea that that iTunes vouchers had become money for criminals. Had you? No. No. Anyway, while I was reading that story, I spotted another tech-related item. As I know what's coming, I do hope nobody's eating. Oh, absolutely. Brace yourselves. Fast food franchise McDonald's is now filtering out all pornographic content from its public Wi-Fi service in the majority of its locations in the US. There were so many people watching porn whilst gorging on Big Macs that McDonald's felt compelled to block access to all explicit content at their restaurants. Are you kidding me? Viewing content of an adult nature as an accompaniment would surely put you off your food. Mm, maybe they were working up an appetite. Oh, too much information. Feeling quite nauseous myself now. Anyway, as I was saying, the decision comes after two years of pressure from internet safety activist group Enough is Enough. It took them two years to work out it's a bad idea to have an adults-only cinema in the local burger emporium. Really? I wonder what they did with the other one year, 364 days, 23 hours and 59 minutes. Now, if anyone was wondering about the negative impact this inevitable loss of trade will have on McDonald's... I wasn't. I wasn't either. Me neither. Well, for those that were, they are looking to fill the revenue gap by joining forces with Pokemon and the Pokemon Go people. Let's just think about that. They're thinking of replacing the previous porn stops with, yes, poke stops. And with that, it's probably a good time to wrap up before we get ourselves in any deeper. As it were. Oh, come on, I never got the chance to talk about chick filler. That's probably a very good thing. Well, that's it for this episode of Matt Bites. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. So send your questions, comments and queries by email to macbitesuk at gmail.com 
or use the contact form on the website or even send us an audio file. You know, we've not had one for a while. We haven't. We should guilt trip them now. We should. Let's all be sad. Mm. Right, that's enough. <laughs> How about leaving a comment on the show notes at mapbytes.co.uk? You can follow us on Twitter at mapbytes. No, you can't. <laughs> <laughs> it was a long time coming, people, but we have the teeth. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash mapbytes. You can follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash thomasmike. You can follow me at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Siri. So until the next time, this has been Mike and Elaine bringing you Mapbytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. That's it. That's it. Almost there. What are you doing? Oh, damn it. It escaped. What did you interrupt for? I nearly had one then. It's only a game you know. A game? I hate to have to tell you this, but Pokemon Go is only a game. Only a game? You have no idea. I thought better of you. I really did. Quick, there's another one. Siri, stop it. I'm not playing Pokemon Go. I'm trying to catch the crew members and restrain them in the studio ready for making good on that promise of next week. Oh, awesome. In that case, step aside and let me have a go. Gotcha. Gotcha.